about your interest in what we're exploring today in London's Soho Radio Studios, an area where many of the guests today found their way, including me. I'm Kirsty Allison, and I'm an author and one of the editors on Ambit Magazine, who first published my work in 2007 when I sent it in anonymously, and the then fiction editor, Jeff Nicholson, who'd been working with J.G. Ballard, scooped me from the slush pile, and I was delighted to join the Rich Fabric of Amber, a publication I'd been aware of growing up, seeing it in interesting sitting rooms and libraries. And that's what we're here to talk about today, exactly why I and many of us are attracted to Ambit. So we're here to discuss the visual legacy aside some of the old school of Ambit and the new designer I've been working with very closely of late, Stephen Barrett. It was an article written by David Britton, written in the design journal I Magazine, that brought my attention to the concept that Ambit is unusual as it doesn't define itself between poems, stories and art. And the art is given as much respect as the literature, although it's known as being a literary magazine too because of its great history of that and working with great artists. So some of the most respected graphic designers and internationally acclaimed artists have worked together with those in literature to create a magazine that has been at the forefront of collaborative interdisciplinary text-based graphics and symbolic use of imagery since Dr. Martin Bax founded it in 1959. So some of my favourite work is with Derek Birdsell of Omnific Studios and we're, we've got great guests here to discuss all of this but also the collaborative work of the late Eduardo Palozzi and J.G. Ballard. For me that's kind of the totally inter interdisciplinary work that kind of cut up and stuff that Michael Foreman, who was the art director for around 50 years, was part of. So we're going to be talking about all of that because the archive is deep and like Ambit's been creating quarterlies with the same printer since the 11th edition, Lavenham Press, here in Suffolk. You can read his biography in a book with Ambit books um, that kind of goes into his view of it. But what I want to do with these podcasts is really explore it from the people who created it. So that's what we're going to do today. We've got the original old school of Ambit. We've also got David Britton in to contextualise what Ambit is because he's just curated this incredible exhibition of 50 years of the photographer's gallery around the corner from where we are in Soho and has written stuff. So we're going to hear from everyone today. I'm honoured to have Alan Kitching in the studio who I had been informed was one of the original designers but he turned out he came in in the 80s and his letterpress work kind of with that William Morris tradition in the sort of stuff that you can find out about at St Bride's Institute and Library and it's a joy to have him join us in the studio. And other guests today include Michael Foreman and the wonderful illustrator Ken Cox. So let's go. Michael Foreman, would you like to tell us how you met Dr Martin Bax and when that was? Yes, it was 1960, 61. I met him at a 
maternity hospital at the top of Hampstead Hill. He was waiting for his firstborn, and so was I. And our wives were in next-door beds. And the third bed in the room was occupied by the wife of Graham Hill, the uh, racing driver. And uh, so with the three of us dads-to-be were kind of waiting, waiting, waiting. And, of course, Graham Hill's son, Damon, came first, as he always does. Anyway, I was talking to Martin, and he said, do you know what you're doing? And I said, oh, I'm at art school. He said, oh, interesting, you know, do you do drawings? And I've got this magazine, and will you do some for me? So, of course, I was delighted to be asked to have my work printed. And then after maybe two, three issues later, he then asked me to be the art director. Damn. I was a student at the Royal College, right? but working for the um, Sunday newspapers, mostly The Observer. I had a contract with them, which was, which was very nice at the time. Great, in fact, at the time. And so he said that, obviously, he needed people to do drawings for nothing, because everybody did drawings for nothing for Ambit. And uh, so I said, OK, I'll ask some of my fellow students at the Royal College. And the first one on my list was David Hockney, <laughs> fortunately. <laughs> and uh, he used to... David set up his um, easel in the corridor... He wasn't in the studio with everybody else. He was in the corridor. And although I was in the illustration department, I would walk past his easel every day. And one day I saw a painting he was doing. In those days, all the art students, the painting students, had to do a copy of an old master. And he didn't do an old master, but he did a pre-Raphaelite copy of The Last of England. And I saw this picture and I said, that's really nice. And uh, How much do you want for it? And he said, why do you want it? I said, it's my wife's birthday coming up. And he said, oh, fiver. You still got it? No. 20 years <laughs> later, after I'd, my wife had moved on, she sold the painting and bought a house. Well, not bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so that's how I met Martin, really. And uh, it just kind of went on from that, that I would um, get friends, colleagues, students to do these drawings. And uh, they were delighted to do it because the, the imagery contained in the poems and the short stories were so wonderful and fantastic and exciting. The first person I asked us was David Hockney mm. and uh, he gave me some of the drawings he was working on and they went straight in. Then I went to Peter Blake and uh, he did a wonderful cover for it and continued, well, up until now really, to submit stuff. He's just been so supportive and, mm. and for students to be in the same company as these people, particularly Peter, because David Hockney was just starting out at that point, but Peter Blake was already well-established, and uh, so it was a tremendous encouragement. I mean, and Eduardo Palozzi, he was also yes. quite established, wasn't he, when he came Incredibly on so, board. yes. And uh, I don't know how Martin met him, but... Um, I think I, it was J.G. Ballard, from what I understand, right. that he was mates. Yes, that's true, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Jim Ballard was terrific to work with because of, well, his, his material was just great. Uh, but I know that Martin made use of uh, leftover bits of uh, paper that uh, Lavenham had from other jobs and incorporate that into Ambit, which, of course, made it much more economic. And So you get these interesting mixtures of papers as well. Of course, Lavenham became involved because they were already printing Martin's medical journals and work. 
And so it was automatic that uh, he would just ask them if they would get involved. And they've been incredibly supportive ever since. I thought we were being really radical in Ambit Pop that Stephen Barrett's been designing uh, by having the artwork by Livingstone in the front of it of a flaccid cock I thought that that was a really really radical thing but actually Ron Sanford and St- Ralph Steadman it's all been done well I've done lots of cocks in my time <laughs> <laughs> one, one was on the cover of an American edition of an American policeman looking at the um, the fanny of a like the Statue of Liberty type thing, and the policeman had his cock out as well. And uh, there's actually limp. cock. There's cock prints as well. And yeah. I mean, I love that stuff. The the Palazzi, was it Palazzi? It actually wasn't. I mean, and this is what's really interesting. I think is kind of you get these totemic icons who are the heroes of it. We get our Peter Blakes and our Stedmans and and those people. But then you actually look at the names of the people that have created it, and. And that culture of exploring that influence across different things happened is really interesting. So maybe we should bring David in now just to discuss a little bit the that part of it, of where Ambit fits within the culture, because we have sort of new departures, the International Times, like Michael Horowitz, we have kind of all these underground zines. And what I've always found interesting is where where does Ambit fit within the underground culture? I don't think Ambit really belonged to the underground press in the sense that IT did, or Jeff Nuttall's book. Jeff Nuttall used to produce his own his own magazine called My Own Mag. Je- Jeff would, I think what I'd say was there, that, that a lot of those magazines were connected by people. So Jeff Nuttall knew Martin. Michael knew Peter Play. It's about people being connected, I think, if I'm not wrong about that. You know, I, th- I think it's very easy for historians in the, in the present day to look back and carve this up into little kind of areas and say, well, there was, a, there was an underground and there was a sort of a, a radical kind of bit of the mainstream and there was this and there was that. Magazines are funny things. They, they, they sort of, something like uh, Ambit was, you know, it had a steady, loyal readership. My own magazine, Jeff Nuttall's thing, he probably made about 100, gave them to his mates, who gave them to their mates. But the point was that, you know, you didn't need the capitalist kind of system of, you know, distribution and banking and, 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 and all the accountants and all that to do it. You did it yourself. And, uh, you know, that DIY thing had politics. Um, I, I mean, I'm, Ambit kind of had its own politics. You know, I, I, I interviewed Martin uh, back back at, back in those times when I when I got very interested in Ambit and started to write about it and, and produced a show that went to um, Raven Row Gallery in 19, uh, 2000, 2009. Martin, Martin was a really interesting um, character to talk to because... He made it fairly plain where he stood in relation to kind of the field of poetry. And that was that he he was very intolerant of kind of really the academics and the, the specialists, you know. He had his own he had his own idea about what was good and what was bad. And you know, one way of doing that is have your own magazine, you know. He was a very prominent um, pediatrician and he did this as a as a in a kind of a sideline. But, you know, people do these things because they have very strong views and access to grind. And Martin had, had, had you know, his fair share of those. And as did Ballard, 
and as did um, you know Palazzi and a lot of those people, and they kind of um, all fitted together in this weird platform of a magazine uh, because there was some space for uh, axe grinding here. Should we get? Mr. Alan Kitching in to talk about this. I'm, I'm really, I feel like an imposter because it should be Derek Birdsell, really. Because he was, uh, I was introduced to Martin through Derek. In those days in Covent Garden in King Street, which was a wonderful studio and a wonderful area, not like it is now. And we always used to meet in pubs and all the time, every night, <laughs> with everybody who was around. And Martin was always in. And all these people and illustrators and students and the whole, you know, maelstrom of people. I met Derek in 1968. Right, OK. And we didn't get together working-wise until about 1972, uh, uh, hmm. something like that. And the magazine came in about... When Derek, I don't remember the date. No. When Derek took over. I remember, but I don't remember the date. No, uh, it was about 1970. Five or something like that, seventy six. Anyway, so and I was working with Derek on other projects, and I was kind of sharing the studio. Eventually, we, we became partners in um, in nineteen seventy eight, I think it was, and I left Omnific, you know, in nineteen eighty eight, eighty nine. Things ran their course, you know, and uh, but we had, uh, when we were together, we had a great time. It was it was fantastic. Then kind of Derek kind of booted onto me somehow. I don't know how we used to. It was designed in the pub, really. You know, let's do it like this. Let's use this type. Let's do that font. Let's do the covers like this. We, we did that. Um, you know, the ambit logo on the top of the, the A. where the A goes down into the spine, yeah. Yeah. which wasn't all that successful because the magazine used to fluctuate in terms of the thickness. <laughs> so the A used to sort of wander around. And, uh, but nevertheless, it was a, you, know, you could see this little red mark on the top, and you knew what it was. So it was a kind of success, but that, we did things like that. And it was all discussed in the pub. They would tell Martin, hey, we'll get the artwork done. And it, it was all like that, you know. It was all very kind of hand-to-mouth in a way. And, and we got the typography sorted out. I think it was set in... Uh, what was it set? I can't remember it was set in now. There's Egyptian bold. Um, and I think we distinguished between the, the stories, the, you know, the, the text and the poems. One was in Sans Serif, I think, one was in Serif. Yeah, well, you did now. the poetry. I mean, yeah. Stephen Barrett, you can maybe discuss this and sort of say where you found influence. Because, because the, 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 you know, the, apart from the illustrations, the, the meat of the magazine was the poetry, I think. When we looked through the archive, there was a big... There was always this split of poetry and yeah. prose, and it was done with different typefaces. Yeah. So that was one of the things that we were conscious of trying to bring back with this redesign that we... Yeah, we looked back to the character of those early ones because there was mm. just much more kind of energy in, 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 the, in, the, yeah. in the design and the, this sort of collage aesthetic that we and, uh, really... And thing, Derek was a fantastic typographer. I mean, that's why I, I, I met him years ago. I knew he had this great reputation. And I think what he did with it was he made the... It made the magazine typographically very interesting. It used, the, it used those big capital letters for the start of articles and things like that. And I can't remember exactly, but it looked it had a different look about it. I mean, Derek, give books and magazines a look. Mm. Mm. It's hard to define, but yet you could tell one of his works from somebody it's else's. That, it's really iconic sort of British design, isn't it? It's kind of that sort of... It, it, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was... Um, it's hard to define because um, it's a very elusive thing, is typography. Mm. You sort of see it and you don't see it. But anyway, to go back to the poetry thing, 
I'm not criticising... No, after Derek left that, John Morgan took over. Mm. And he, re, he re, again redesigned it in the 90s or something. One thing I always hated about it, the way he did it, he did it very, he's a very good typographer. He came out of Reading University. It was the grid and it was all the sans-serif stuff and it was all beautifully done. But, in my view, setting type in light font is very bad for legibility. You can't... There's not enough contrast between... The black marks, which are the letters and the words, and the background, which is the paper, the white paper. Light type is only any good for mobile phones and railway timetables, not for poetry. <laughs> this quote from Derek Birdsall, and he said, uh, white space is the lungs of the layout. Mm. And I, I really yeah. love that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think Martin, you know, like, you know, he, he would give him his... Um, his head on that, just so well, you, know, you think that's what we should do. That's what that's way it looked. It, it made it look very attractive, I think, and uh, very different from its predecessor, which was something Martin did himself, I think. It's it was it. all, all the text was letterpress, of course. Oh, by, so you did use actual letterpress? Yeah, yeah, because it would have been done at Lavenham, they had the typesetting, and you got, I think we got, like we did all the work in those days. You got your galleys and you, you did the pay stop, you know. Yeah. Now, I think, I don't know whether I did it or Martin did it or someone, I don't know who did it now, but. Can you remember, Michael, doing pair stops? No. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, no, I, you know, I mean, it led to the story. Yeah. I did, yeah, so many pages to work, to lay it out on and things like that, so it was all done like that. Mm. studio was, a, was a, a mishmash of everybody, wasn't it? it was, everyone came in. Well, it was in the middle of Covent Garden yeah. and opposite the pub. And Ambit, I think, throughout its life, while I was involved, was almost a kind of not an afterthought but a side product of... Uh, the social gathering. Yeah. And uh, as the new people gathered, you know, joined the gathering, so new work came into the magazine. I mean, I loved the jazz part of it and going to the Chelsea Arts Club, where we can perhaps now introduce Ken Cox. But when I first was published, I, I was invited to a beautiful event and it was very much that was the culture of, of getting to know one another. I mean, and I think this is where Bryony Bax's influence has been really e egalitarian in a lot of ways because she has digitised the whole process so that now submissions are unsolicited and they are genuinely beyond that thing of the club culture that I grew up in of having to go to the right places, know where to be on a certain night so that you'd meet people. Whereas now that culture is on the internet and that is a subculture in itself. Mm. So I'm kind of really interested in how I navigate that in the future and I love the, the idea of a movement and how a movement actually works digitally as well kind of how do you maintain a culture that's global too it's quite it's interesting it's fascinating how it's going to go forward but you know you had to have that physical space of Covent Garden yeah and my, you know, my technology finishes at uh, 1972 I think <laughs> uh, I'm still in, I'm still in, the, in, in the 1450s really you know with Gutenberg. <laughs> Good place to be. <laughs> I, I have a mobile phone. Yeah. It's a very, very old one. Mm. You can't take pictures with it or anything. And um, it's not really mobile because I always forget to take it with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I aspire to that. In the paper that, that Stephen selected is beautiful mm. and tactile mm. and... Yeah, how we develop that going forward is really interesting. So Ken Cox, anyway. Yeah. So the illustration process, what I'm starting to understand now is that you, like Mike Foreman, you were bringing the artists in. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. You, well, you just you know you just meet them through mm. you know social. Particularly being a teacher at an art school, you did would see up and coming illustrators. Well, particularly at the Royal College of Art. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I mean, I'm very proud that in this current edition of Ambit Pop, we've got, we've got Neil Fox, who was part of Lagun, which was part of the Royal College. Mm. So I'm really glad that we're kind of having that in. And Marie Fauchon, who Dr. Marie Fauchon, who sort of introduced Stephen into the mix she's been at the Royal College so it's kind of, it is a very much a, a legacy between one place and another too for selecting for selecting people yeah. um, and how did, how, so how did it work with you Ken explain yeah, your I, journey I can yeah. just give my history on that um, I, I was at the Royal College, my wife was at St Martin's and Mike taught both of us um, and there was a bit of a rivalry there. Well, <laughs> and um, Mike came in one day with a project, and I think he gave it to the whole class. And he said, "There's a magazine called Ambit, and would everyone like to submit something, you know, and be published?" And you know, I was like, "Wow!" Pub I had been published slightly in IT, um, doing a, f a drawing for a fashion shop in the King's Road, you know, which was just some lettering, Palisades. And um, and I was like, wow, you know, in a proper magazine. So, and then it, I was 67 to 70, and I left in 1970 and met my wife at a dance from, you know, she used to hang around the Royal College, and she was an art director on the Times, and um, she said, bring your work in, uh, Margot, um, her name, and she said, bring your work in, and we'll give you some work. So I st actually started really working on. Black in black and white in newspapers, broadsheet broadsheet newspapers, you know. But um, I've always loved black and white, you know, and it's a challenge. Yeah, it's and interesting. We're reintroducing that black and white. There was something about the quality of the black and white, and as um, as people have said before, it's got a sort of primitive, edgy quality that you don't get with colour, you know. And there were all those magazines like IT and Oz floating around. That's and, why it's so iconic. And it was well. all kind, of, yeah, yeah, it was all kind of hands-on DIY. And then I wound up wor working for Margot for many years on various broadsheet newspapers. And that's a challenge in the sense that newsprint was terrible then. So if you did a, as Alan was saying, if you did a spindly little line drawing or in pencil, it would get lost. But if you did something that looked more like a woodcut, as the Radio Times used in the 50s, it, it was like, whoa, you know, it can work. You know, it doesn't have to be colour, it can work. So, um, and I, after that, there was a big gap, um, and then suddenly um, reconnected with Mike, and um, he said, why, why don't you join the club? And the club was having, at that time, a lot of fabulous events. So Ambit, that's the Chelsea Arts Chelsea Club, Arts so that club. was really yeah, important sorry. in Ambit's history as well. In Ambit's history, and they had poetry readings, and there was Brian Patton and Roger McGough, all sorts of people were members. Yeah, everyone poetry, was down there, right? Poetry, writing, everything. And it was a scene. I mean, that's the main scene. thing to remember, that yeah. Chelsea was a scene and you needed that scene, and it yeah. was getting regenerated in the same way that Shoreditch has been regenerated, yes, in the same yeah. way that Portobello's been regenerated, in the same way that South London or Kent Road yeah. is getting done now. So. And Soho was the place then mm. you know really because you had Wardour Street was all film anyway that's a whole other thing but that was a place but you actually had to go and meet people you didn't have the internet and you had to knock on doors and when I started work you actually had to go to the newspaper with your portfolio and you know um, and meet the art director or the assistant art director or whoever you could snag 
And as Mike said earlier on the way here, he said, you know, you would have a relationship with that person maybe for many years, you know. Now it's like you're past maybe from one person to another in circumstances. You barely re meet the no. people. I mean, it's but this is the first time that Stephen and I have been like physically in the same yeah, space. Yeah. We've been working together for yeah. six months. I it's mean, like yeah. when you go to the estate yeah. agent, you know. Yeah, now she's not in today. Um, anyway, so <laughs> I, but in those days, you you built up your connections, uh, you know, in your file of facts, and then you'd go and yeah. see people, <laughs> and uh, and then started working for Ambrit properly. And I think I worked for like. 20 years you know on you know various issues and loved it i just loved the grittiness of the words and i think I, often it was poetry then it was a short story um and it varied a lot but it was very edgy and i just loved the edginess it just suited my personality and um it's a bit like a lot of my work anyway so i was i was in heaven doing those drawings and then seeing them published um you know in the quarterly. I mean, I've always seen it as being quite jazz and quite psychedelic. Yeah. In in some way, and I mean that kind of part of psychedelic London. How does that play into Ambit's culture? Pop art was it more psychedelic? I think it was a greenfield, and it was just totally open. Nobody knew what they were doing. They were just like, I met this guy, I met this woman at a party, and she, Caroline Coon or some of my wife. Oh, I met, met her the other day. She well, was there great. you go. But yeah. those were kind of moves and shakes. You didn't know that when you met them, you know. But I think everyone was just at like the fashion industry. Everything was just happening, at like Bieber, you know. And nobody really knew what was going to happen. And it was quite a small that, that, scene, though. I think that's it was a small scene. Yeah. Dougie Fields is an old friend of yeah. mine, and I mean, I understand the underground culture through him, and mm. it actually being quite a small, small scene. Pink yeah. Floyd's house yeah. in Cromwell Road. Mm. Those are kind of and these happening places, yeah. or the Arts Lab on Drury Lane, or or whatever these places were. Yeah. It was a bit like going to CBGBs, you know, and in the 70s, you know, the first place you went was America, and, you know, the CBGBs, you know, and then Talking Heads started there, and I saw John Cale and various people there, and it's like, whoa. And that was like a scrubby little dump. I think know? I've been thrown out of CBGBs, well, but less about that. That's a yeah. shame. <laughs> yeah. That's... <laughs> In my dark past, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Euphoria Bliss, right? So Mike Foreman, you were on the cover with Euphoria Bliss. I was on the cover, was I? Yeah, at the Royal <laughs> Academy, I understand, with, right. Martin, with, yeah. with Martin and with J.G. Ballard. Yeah. So would you like to elucidate a little on who was Euphoria Bliss and... That relationship. There's a very iconic photographic cover, and I love some of the photographic covers of Ambit. Ooh, really brilliant. I love the football one. You know, the the football crowd one. I think that's brilliant. Um, but so with yeah, with her. I mean, there's a brilliant picture at the Royal Academy of Arts, and she's wafting in a beautiful crochet number yeah. with the guys behind. I mean, and this was something that. This, this guy's network, this is why I was interested to have Margot, your wife, coming in, but we haven't got enough space with COVID sort of recording stuff to do that. But I'm very interested in the future to document the female angle mm. on this and, and understand how it's changed. I think she's fabulous. But I don't know how she arrived on the Ambit scene. I don't know who, who introduced her. It, was, it could have been somebody like Jim Ballard or, or, or Palazzi. But... Uh, well, I mean, it was Pilo it's a lineup of Palozzi, Ballard, you, 
Martin, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't really don't know who, you know, performed the introduction, but it was just, you know, just a nice event. And she would then turn up at various ambit evenings, always looking incredible. And, uh, but where she came from and what happened later, I have no idea. I really want to know, where is Euphoria Bliss? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what's happened to her? Where is she now? Cause she, so explain what she used to do. She used to just dance and... She might be listening. She'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> i tell you. I, I really have no recollection much of it. When she, would, she would be there and she would be the centre of attention and no doubt would do, you know, throw the odd move. But I, I can't remember there being any particular sort of programmed dancing mm -hmm. going on places. It was this, this kind of society thing. And um, and but happened at, at the end of it. Because but a I mean along the, the, yeah. along the way without there being any kind of plan. Right. I mean Palazzi too. He he. Uh, the V&A have bought his archive, that crazy cat archive. I mean, and it's so pre-internet and it is so cut out because he was just ripping advertising stuff out of magazines and kind of quite surreal, quite quite brilliant mashup before Photoshop. I mean, it's interesting to think what Palazzi would be doing if he was a contemporary now, really, and how, how, he'd, how he'd work now. I'd love to... Would he be an Instagram artist? Would he... How would he operate? Oh, I think he would have been. He'd have been on the edge of technology. Yeah. yeah I think he was one of the first to do... Um, to use the... Um, you draw with your finger on the screen. Because Hockney moved into... Yeah. Before he did it, I think. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, Palazzi, Palazzi is that, like he had carrier bags of that stuff. I mean, he was just like, carrying stuff around, just mm. ripping it up and and putting it in a magazine. And, and those bits, are, they're just amazing. Well, I'm glad he did it before he got involved in the, the internet and stuff like that, because I think it's to the detriment of art. So we're going to return to this old school of Ambit and the new school of Stephen Barrett. But on this note, it's a good time to hear from our competition judge this year, the first time we've opened up art. So just send in your pictures on the subject of metamorphosis, please. is by the wonderful musician Gail Dunnell. You can hear more of our collaborations on a show that aired on Soho Radio yesterday. Courtesy of the almighty Jim Sklavunos. Scroll back. But first, listen to Michael Sally. 
So, Michael Salu, you're joining us for this Ambit podcast. Thank you very much. Absolute pleasure. Excellent. So you're in Berlin. I am, yes. I've been here a little while, but obviously from the UK. It's a second city for me in a way, um, primarily from London. But I've been coming here for many years as well prior to moving here. Um, and I just had a lot of friends here who were from different parts of the world, but also from the UK. And just a sort of real interesting mix of characters and various cultural scenes and just you know there's just a, it's just a lively place yeah the design culture of berlin has really been developing itself hasn't it too so yeah it's it's changing a lot as you know naturally as with you know rapid technologically driven progress <laughs> um, so there's there are definitely sort of cultural shifts even in the time that i've been here um, and design as far as i can see certainly integrates, I mean, certainly the kind of digital design side of things is moving quite fast. Um, you know, experiential design by virtual reality, that kind of thing. So it's, it's, it's going along pretty well. Yeah, techno city and all of that. <laughs> that too, yeah. And that I mean, it has, been, it has been asleep this past year, but. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, and it's, so tell me, Tell me your own story. I'm just keen because you've you've run this amazing house of thought cooperative thing that we'll we'll come to, but it was Dr. Marais Fajon who recommended you to judge the art competition this year as someone who kind of understood art and design and had some context with what Amber is and how how important art is to our own identity, really. Yeah, sure. Um... I mean, I started out, um, I studied both design and fine art, um, and I started out in the industry um, a little while ago now, and was working kind of as a practice, practicing artist for a couple of years, um, but also had fundamental kind of design training. And at some point I needed to, you know, earn a living, a proper living. So, <laughs> so then I started to, gravitate more towards finding a path, a career path, a creative career path that would allow me to work on things that I had an interest in, as well as, you know, earn money and survive. Um, and I, so I kind of made a conscious decision quite early on after university that I didn't want to take a more explicitly commercial route, you know, such as like advertising agencies, that kind of sort of thing that wasn't really, for me, um, I was much more interested in kind of language and visual culture and, you know, artistic practice. And I started working at Random House, which is now Penguin Random House, many years ago and worked for the literary division there. Um, worked there for a number of years doing design and art direction. So working across a range of different titles, you know, right across the literary kind of division from, you know, historical fiction through the classics, working on, you know, series for Italo Calvino and Dostoevsky and all these wonderful uh, writers. Um, because lit literature is actually my first love. That's the kind of thing that I was most interested in since I was a child. So I kind of hunted out that career, really. I really wanted to sort of work closely with literature. And I think that that's been really nice for me because it serves as a kind of bedrock for this constant growth and education, you know, through whilst working professionally as well. 
So I worked at Random House for a number of years and really cut my teeth there as a, a very kind of, how would you say, multifaceted creative, because I think it's a really sort of high pressure environment. And what that does is <clears throat> help you to learn how to produce work really quickly, like produce really good ideas really quickly and find ways to execute those ideas. So with the fundamental design skills, that means obviously creating a lot of stuff yourself, but also as an art director and, and the kind of that kind of editor, editor side of things, working with a variety of different artists, illustrators, finding out who's doing what, getting to understand people's ways of working and then bringing that in to help execute your own ideas in terms of what you're, how you're trying to present or reimagine the work of literature. Um, so that was a really good way of learning a lot, sort of fundamentally training myself in so many different areas of kind of a visual practice. So from learning how to illustrate myself from doing design, from working with typography, from organizing photo shoots, from, you know, making short films, like there's a whole host of things that I managed to, to do there. And that served as a kind of really good foundation for everything that I do now. Um, which I guess we'll get to, but after Random House, I was approached by Granta to come and head that up and be creative director there. Um, and that included Granta Magazine, Granta Books, Portobello Books. So that was a lot of responsibility, but it was such a broad role because obviously the magazine itself, you know, which I'm sure many people know, it has such a kind of prestigious um, name and history and legacy. Um, and part of my remit for that was to kind of work with that, but also try and bring a really kind of fresh, progressive, modern face to the magazine. Um, and it was a it was a sort of combined role, as much as it was a design-led one. It was also one that was about was also kind of an editor. So I was art editor and photography editor. So I had to take on the kind of legacy of documentary photography and find new ways of tackling that. I brought in a lot more kind of artistic photography or photography that was, you know, working with the kind of tension between sort of conceptual and documentary, um, bringing in artists like Adam Broomberg, Olive Shanner, and a whole host of different types of people. Um, so that role was really broad and I worked on Grand Books, Portobello Books, kind of overseeing the list, not necessarily designing everything myself, but bringing in interesting designers from different areas, particularly outside of publishing, that's sort of something in, that I was really interested in doing. So I'd bring in designers who worked, you know, more in the music industry or did other things and got them to really chop it up because I think publishing can be a bit staid sometimes. So I had a lot of fun with that. Uh, and what it did for me is give me a nice platform, I guess, in the kind of cultural sphere, particularly between the UK and the US because Grant has straddled the two. So that gave me a lot of access to also writers because I would in, you know, invite writers to kind of work with some of the, the art and photography I was publishing, you know, kind of writing responses, like opening up these really kind of interesting dialogues between text and image. And Granta kind of gave me a platform to be more of a kind of cultural spokesperson. That's what it, was. it allowed me to communicate what I was trying to do with the magazine, with the books, working closely with the editor, John Friedman. And then it opened up opportunities for me to write myself. And I started publishing essays and then moved into publishing fiction. Um, 
and then by the time the, the end of my time at Granta, which was almost about four years or so, I started to think about how I wanted to set up on my own and take on this very multidisciplinary practice, but one that would, didn't feel diffused, and, but found a way to bring these different kind of modes of creative expression and manifestation together that can work both to serve as a kind of resource for businesses, like working with new companies, doing, you know, branding projects or strategy, things like that, but really with the, the kind of emphasis of doing this from a cultural point of view and not necessarily commercial. Um, so bringing all those elements together is what I did put under my umbrella now, which is what House of Four is. So within that, I combined some of my own artistic practice with the kind of more business relationships that I have with clients. And on the other side, I write a fair amount and producing kind of uh, art projects as well. So currently working on, uh, just had two exhibitions and working on another one. So there are a lot of, it sounds like there are a lot of different <laughs> nodes to my network, but they do make some kind of sense when you begin to see it all come together. It's a, it sounds super cross-disciplinary, really. I mean, that's kind of, it's, it's really, it's only really industry that separates the arts into being the music industry, the art industry, the literature industry. But I think artists are generally working on the peripheries and making the progressive kind of shapes around the edge, right? So Absolutely. if you're a creative mind, you're going to hopefully be sucking up all different types of, 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 of impact, you know, and stuff that, stuff that kind of excites you, really. I think that's what keeps you going as a as a creative individual, really. And I think, Ambit, you know, we've always done, I mean, we've just been speaking about the sort of the Palazzi and Ballard connections and them collaborating and all the cut-up stuff that mm. Burroughs did and kind of how that used to happen in print. Kind of, it sounds like you're moving into, in a place now where you're working beyond print in some ways, but... Hmm. Yeah, yeah um... I mean, I started this uh, some time ago um, in that I was, I was, I've always been very interested in digital media. Um, and even during my time working in publishing, I spent a lot of time banging my head against the wall trying to get, you know, people in the industry to think more about how to make, um, how to make the magic that's happening in the work that's being published work online. And I think even now, you know, a decade later, it's still, <laughs> it's still kind of a mess I mean but um so Granta was an example so I take some of the stories in the magazine and then interpret them as short films and animations as a way of just trying to open up the audience to the to the kind of work being published because you know we're talking about literary fiction and non-fiction which you know to some people can be a little bit you know seem a little bit elite but it and I was trying to sort of show how accessible the stories are and the topics being dealt with and so on. So I always use the kind of digital practice. And I think with Passive Thought now, I'm very interested in how like storytelling and language can manifest in a kind of digital space. So what I've been doing, certainly with my own projects, I've just finished like an augmented reality piece in which I'm sort of telling a poem inside the augmented reality space as a way of thinking about the way we're using public space. Um, 
so the, so the digital and the print, I think there's a, I don't think they're necessarily divergent spaces. I think they could work together quite well, but I still think there's quite a tension with that. And some of it is just fundamental, like the, you know, the, the people who are in the various industries who don't necessarily cross-pollinate very well. Um, the tech scene can be sort of quite rapid and quite ruthless and not considerate to the kind of subtleties of, you know, language and stories that are so it's 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 a strange kind of mix. I mean, gaming is doing it in quite in a quite an interesting way, but even that, I mean, I still think it can always be better. Um, but I enjoy playing with those two different spaces, absolutely. Uh, it's it's a slightly unwieldy space because I mean to do it well, you need a lot of different skill sets. Um, so the best games involve you know developers and UX designers and novelists and you know you know those who are simply just there to render the textures and the models and like the huge teams. Um, and it's because of that it's sort of still. And because of the money involved, it's still quite, it's quite a tense environment. It's a little bit like the film industry in that respect, you know? So I think in order to get, get things made, they're either really low budget indie stuff, which is one guy who's able to, to write and to kind of code, or it's a huge team of a hundred people working 24 hours a day for six months, you know? So <laughs> there's, at some point there will be a space in between in which a lot of more digital tools will be more accessible to more people and, and it would be easier to, to make work in that space. It's not the case yet, um, which what I'm doing at House of Four is, I mean, I do work a lot with digital tools, um, quite hands-on, but what I consider now to be my kind of, you know, USP or whatever you want to call it is more the ideas, you know, like what you're saying. So I mean, having, a good understanding of culture, society, history, politics, art history, bringing all that together to kind of tell stories in different forms, whether that be working and developing a magazine or creating a short film or creating a digital project. I don't necessarily feel that I need to be hands-on doing everything. It's more that I'm now, because of my experience, I'm now able to bring in people with the key skills to support what I would like to do, what I would like to achieve. So. I think it's what's been interesting with some of these Ambit submissions for art is there have been a few queries on whether people can submit poems and art together. And I'm all for that. I love that. Interesting. <laughs> so how how are you how are you seeing that in terms of how you would categorize the submissions? Because we have seen you do have art slash or illustration, poetry and you know, so if there were joint submissions and it would say coming from one person or a team, how would you regard that? Where would you put the Well, I, I, I've said to them, can you submit to both categories, please? Mm. So that both sets of judges get to see both separate things and they get judged on merit. And then if they should get as far as being on a long list, then we will decide how to do that but you know the the interesting thing about this competition for the first time we're doing 
one of these pops. I don't know if I've sent. I don't think I've sent you one of these yet. I must. But it's a, it's this, <laughs> it's, a, it's this beautiful new edition designed by Stephen Barrett. And what I would like to do is, you know, in the next pop, which is going to be published in October, that we're going to publish the winners. So obviously, if someone's done a really good drawing that's also a poem I mean why not you know it's like it should be a space for that sort of stuff so uh, I don't I think it's you gen if it kind of pushes into into those things and we just have to take it case by case really with that I don't think there should be that many rules other than the boundaries of okay a poem is 50 words that you're doing a page that's a you know a pdf page that you're submitting and and then the fiction is uh, a thousand words which is really tight you know really really tight to be writing something so but that becomes its own boundary in itself kind of then. that kind of economy when it comes to writing is, is sort of a nice it's a nice exercise to work with I think it can really focus you or it's a it's a good challenge yeah I mean and it's it, but there's been you know there's been one query today and she's saying it's not it's not good it's like a thousand words it's like I can't write <laughs> I can't I can't do that and but personally having worked as a journalist I mean that's what I've had to do all my life is compress stuff into being a very small space when there's so much more to say and that's why I come from that perspective of editing being writing really um but less so when I was starting out and less informed, which also has its own energy. So, yeah, you can't, you can't say, uh, you know, I have rules, eh? I mean, uh... yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, from my own experience, like obviously my writing as well is my career is still relatively young, but as it evolves, I get more and more comfortable with the space in between the words, you know? So once you kind of do that, then a thousand words can actually be a reasonable a reasonable uh, parameter to work with in. Mm. It's, it's also in a magazine. I mean, I'm sure you've experienced this with Granta when you're designing a magazine. I mean, do you want to have a lot of ma a lot of magazine taken up by a lot of story? Is it better yeah. to have things that are a bit cut up and more of a what a magazine is, which is kind of lots of little bits, which is why I think in Ambit the poetry works really well because it does yeah. sort of divide it up and... Yeah, because yeah, I think it's, it depends on, because, you know, the, the, the way that we spend time in a magazine, I guess, has changed as well. Um, so the long form stuff, as, as, as unfortunate as it, as, it, as it is, you know, our attention span is different to, to what it was. So I think if you can visually flow your work, the work in a magazine through in a way that allows people to kind of pause and bounce around between different things. Um, you know, the stronger it is, potentially. Yeah, we've just been discussing that, Stephen Barrett and I, of how we kind of break up certain bits and mm -hmm. kind of lay the graphics or the animation, or the illustrations that have come in so that they... Because you don't want to overwhelm... You don't want it to be overwhelming, I don't think. But it's kind of like a compliment. But I do love a bit, a bit of visual anarchy and kind of... Um, but, you know, it can be really emotional, can't it, too? Kind of the, you know, what you create by how, by the tones and all the rest of it. I mean, you can make it. Yeah. There's so much, there's so much. And those are the sort of decisions I'm sort of starting to come into with Ambit myself is kind of how, how we do that.
Um, yeah, I mean, one of, one of the things that I really enjoyed doing um, was, you know, commissioning artists and illustrators to produce pieces for uh, narrative fictional works in Granta. And what I would always encourage them to do was not illustrate the story, but kind of respond to it, which then allowed them to think about what the writer is trying to do and how they can engage with that in order to create a bigger spread of ideas in the magazine, as opposed to just saying, oh, you know, there was a little boy who went to school in the story, so I'm going to draw a picture of him. No, it was much more like a kind of expansion of what's happening in the text. So you add more to it. And how much did you direct everyone? Did you sort of thematically do stuff? Did you say there's a sort of, there's a vibe of this across the stories, this edition? Did you, and how did you actually edit the designers? Did you think of them as complementary? Did you just say, right, we're going to have that guy because I like what he does? Or Yeah, I was, I was really quite precise mm. about that. Um, and over time, I was able to gauge really who needed what. So you can tell, for example, wouldn't be just these kind of criteria, but say it was someone who was straight out of college who was very talented. I would already spend a bit of time talking to them to figure out how much direction they would need in terms of producing what I needed for the thing. Because obviously I'm under pressure because it has to be right. Um, or sometimes maybe someone you know who's got 10, 15 years experience that maybe doesn't need pushing that much. Or if I'm bringing someone from a completely different area to produce an editorial illustration, then I would tell them to an extent what I need from them. And sometimes I would need to go into the text, into the story itself and extract what I think is the core concept that would work as an illustration. So it really depended on what who I was working with and I would have to gauge, and I think that that's the key to doing, you know, that kind of art direction of like photo editing or whatever it is. Like it, it's got to be your kind of knowledge and intuition. It's not just like throw it at the wall and see what happens, you know, like, I mean, the, certainly the level that I was operating at, you know, I'm under pressure as well because we have our deadlines and things have to be done. Um, and they have to be delivered to a certain quality. And then I set my own standards for that. So that's what's expected. So it, it meant that I needed to be not kind of draconian about it, but control the process as much as possible whilst giving the artist room to, to do what they want, sort of empowering them. Um, and it's, a, it's a sort of, I think there's a, there's a bit of an art to that as well. in quite this way often I've let designers just go wild and give them the space to do stuff and um, that comes back with sort of something quite authored and yeah it's it's such a huge huge gamut to to go through and kind of just say yeah I mean it's start it's stylistically because with Ambit we work with different you know different artists so kind of how how that is going to progress in in terms of styles you know that's what I found really interesting with the one that we're working on at the moment is just kind of styles and making them so that they flow through the pages and and do it beautifully rather than it just being a bit too of a mix mash I mean that's the that's it yeah there's a real art to that and then how you do place it on the page so yeah absolutely and I think you can 
find little links between um, you know, the stars of respective artists, both visually and conceptually. Um, and there are things that over time, once you start kind of getting used to, to working with images so much, you can sort of almost see these little associations between them. Um, and that can be a nice tool to use when, when producing the layouts. So what, what do you advise for, for our theme for this competition is metamorphosis. So kind of what, what are you looking for? I think we're going to extend the deadline until the middle of July to the 14th of July. So people have got that long to throw things into the pot. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty spot on as a theme. I mean, I guess we don't, if you're submitting, I guess you don't have to consider it just as something responsive to this moment. But I think this theme works as a way of talking about the human experience in general, you know, so that opens up plenty of opportunity to respond really expansively. I mean, I think even, even if you, even if you decided to be a bit more literal about it and kind of look at Kafka's work again and just say, well, you know, look at how many different types of allegory exist in that, how many different ways and different directions you could take it. I think I would just be looking for um, work that isn't just clever for the sake of it, but has a draw, a way of putting you in because it has something to say. You know, there's what I find are the strongest work are the ones that combine both the kind of wit and the emotional intelligence. I think uh, in a in a visual practice, I think that, as well as the craft, of course. But I, I need to see more than just something that looks pretty, I guess, because <laughs> you can always tell if the work carries weight. You can always tell. Mm. Um, so that's what I, that's what I would hope for. And and I mean, as it's general art, would you be would you be open to sort of sculpture get taken or kind of found objects or kind of how would you how far would you lengthen the scope of what illustration is yeah I mean that is that is such a such a strange um definition somehow of a, of the practice I think I I understand it in two ways I understand it from the kind of practical commercial framing of it which would be the illustration produced for to represent and visualize something else and then there's the practice of illustration which is way more kind of intuitive and is from the traditions and the practices of drawing and just kind of engaging and visualizing your environment so that's the kind of more traditional but then there's absolutely no reason why you can't see and use a whole different variety of media and methods to get to the same point. Um, certainly that's what I do. Like I don't have a fixed way of working. Like it, I've had people ask me before, so like, oh yeah, I'd love to see some of your work and you know have a look at your style. And I said, well I don't have one. <laughs> I just I just pull what I need to together based on what I'm trying to say. Um, and I think that when I was years ago when I was working at Granta and beyond I worked a bit with the Association of Illustrators and I would constantly try to ram this home and say, well, I think your definition of illustration should be opened up, absolutely. So I would be totally fine to see people using objects and combining media in this way if it, if it works to, to get across their point and their ideas. 
Yeah, I'd love I'd love to see some sort of conceptual stuff on what illustration is as well. And yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, interrogate what the medium actually is. What does it mean now? Because we've got this sort of long-standing relationship with the Royal College of Art, where you know, but kind of all their greats pull in their best students, really. So. But that is within the practice of something that's quite traditional. And, you know, certainly in literature, I want to smash it out of being a knowledge circle. I'd like to open Ambit up so, you know, as wide as we can, really. So, uh, so I mean, we all express ourselves, whether that is through TikTok or Instagram or through apps that you kind of get and stuff so I some yeah I mean like I I get inspired by stuff that's playing with those sorts of ideas too and kind of is asking questions I mean I I think it sounds to me like if there was some digital art in there of some sort it would be quite interesting to um to yeah yeah just because metamorphosis I mean with tech as you were saying when we began I mean there's technology is our world currently and it has been through lockdown and our you know our our approach to uh, creating the AI futures that we're going to be a part of it's it's just kind of all all of those sorts of ideas I mean I'd, I'd love to I'm not the judge, but yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we've we've accelerated the process in this past year and a half. Yeah. Um, certainly, you know, a lot of code bases from organisations and brands and companies have been restructured to kind of speed up this this process of kind of automation. So, a lot of that needs to be considered and how it relates to personhood and social and community and so on. So I think that's a really um, spot on kind of space to explore with this theme. Um, Digital art is, again, also a very contentious thing as well. I mean, I do it myself, um, but I do it to kind of, not to sort of particularly focus on the medium, more to focus on what I'm trying to say. So I work with code and I produce images from that too. But just as a way of like talking about what's actually happening um, using these things as tools, they're just tools. You know, I, I, I worry that sometimes people get too focused on the medium and get fetishized that and get hung up on it. Whereas what I'm more interested in, what what can you do with that tool to tell, tell something, to, to share a story or to think about a new way of looking at the theme? So that could be a pencil or that could be JavaScript. You know, it could be whatever it is. Um, and I think that's the most interesting way to engage with tech in terms of like having taken some agency, not sort of sitting back and letting everything just completely wash over you and dominate and control what your creativity is going to be. Um, and I noticed that I've, I've dealt with a lot of younger artists and practitioners who have gotten really quite lazy because of that. So, you know, they will essentially send me a mood board of work and it's just a Pinterest board, just things that they've grabbed from Pinterest and they haven't thought about what they put together. They haven't thought about why those images are relevant or make sense. And, and I can't work like that. I think I come from a different stock. And I think this is the danger of having that kind of ease. It, it, it kind of can take away from the, the kind of more substance, the substance of your creative thinking and your creative practice. So I think it's worth being careful of that sort of thing. I'm most happy when I'm just writing as well. Oh, yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. And there's there's something about the intangibility and of that space, the sort of the pared down nature of it and the kind of infinite possibility of it that is both like very challenging but also the most rewarding. And I think it still offers the individual who is either writing or reading or both to think in a way that is incredibly expansive that tech hasn't yet been able to fulfill. And I think it keeps trying to, I mean, you know, increasingly we, we develop new things and like GPT-3, which is, uh, which is an AI based um, tool for automating uh, textual narrative. Like there's a lot of these things that keep sort of trying to get into that space. So I still think it's the most um, intangible in terms of like what is man and woman's desire for expression? Where does that come from? What is it about, you know, going back to cave patents, for example, you know, that kind of intrusive nature of needing to communicate, needing to express. Um, and I think in writing that's still the case, it's still the most purest expression of that. Yeah, it's a sentience as well. That I mean, I think technology will get better at creating that. I'm I'm really interested in all of this, but that's a whole other conversation. But it's <laughs> but yeah, it's um yeah, it's it's interesting for sure. On and and also, I mean, I'm sure you find this with your House of Thoughts or more commercial projects that you're doing with those bits, you know. And I'm sure you know. You, I mean, what's great about working with brands is that you have the budgets and the possibility to experiment and progress culture under a brief of some sort. But it does give you the opportunity to consider things at a, at a level that you might not be able to as an artist. You, you definitely have more scope in that way. Like, but you equally have often more restriction as well because you're... you're eventual requirement is, is is a commercial one so therefore you might have to rein in what you want to do conceptually but you might have more of a budget in which to do what you need to do so it's a it's a bit of a trade-off and that's partly why i set up in the way that i did so it's the same environment or the same brand or company that allows me to do the other stuff that is more conceptual that is more research-based that is more about thinking through what's happening now and um, and trying things out with with projects on my own and in collaboration with people. So, you know, one feeds the other, basically. That's, what, that's how I like to work. But I think all artists have always had to do that. I, I, there's, it's, we're not at a point yet where automation has saved us all into a point of total freedom. So uh, let's just hope that day comes before too long, eh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, yeah. Um, oh, it's great, great to talk to you, Michael. Salu. And um, we can find your stuff on sort of House of Thought and sort of read some of your writing on there. Mm. Yeah. yeah, there's a little bit on there. I also have a little bit on my own website, which is michaelsalu.com. Um, and then, yeah, there's work here and there all over the internet. So. <laughs> <laughs> At some point, you stop trying to collect it and control it, or just let it do its thing. Yeah. Think, uh, years, years ago, I tried to manage like my portfolio. I was like, nowadays, I can't. I spend, I'd spend way too much time doing that. You just become um, a total so, archivist, I think. In that, yeah, I, yeah. I so think... I'd rather spend the time working on new projects. Yeah, me too. I, there's plenty of that past. So 
Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. All right, I'm really looking forward to it. So, are you working on any sort of long form fiction or? I am. Um, a couple of things. One is is a kind of combined project. It combines image and fiction. Um, and it's combined by using working with code. So I'm exploring ways of translating my fiction or my writing into images and trying to put it all together as one piece of work. Um, so that's my kind of current research slash art based project, which is sort of ongoing, but I hope for, you know, soon enough to have a single long form piece of text that forms a kind of vertebrae of this book and then all these sort of, so, you know, we were talking about working with text and image at Granto, it's like a kind of evolution of that really. So it's working with text and image and then code works as this kind of connection between the two things and like extracts something new out of it. Um, and that project is called Red Earth and I put some of it on House of Ford, which is, uh, so you can sort of see a little bit of what's happening there. And I finished, uh, I finished a kind of experimental, I don't know, I wouldn't even use that word. I finished a novel of sorts um, and it's currently with my agent, so we'll see what happens with that. And I'm also working on a film with uh, some collaborators of mine, a band called Algiers, who are producing the score and I've written it. And it's, it's, a, it's not a narrative film, it's maybe fairly abstract, but I would call it, uh, I would call it a long form poem. I love poem films. I'm all, I'm all like, I'm in the moment. Of yeah. Yeah. I'm in the moment of sort of poem films as poems. I don't know if you saw the one that our guest editor, Leas, um, did, Leas um, Saudi from the Fat White family, the moon bathing in February film. I loved it. Uh, directed by Niall Trask. And it's, it is, it's a real poem. And he uses the poem that he wrote in Ambit, in Ambit Pop. Um, within within the text, and it's exactly that. It's that. It's exactly that thing of one thing informs the other, becomes something else. And I think you know you must find this too with your different different projects. It's it's kind of. I think once you stop trying to hold on to them as being one form, it's actually hugely liberating, and they take their own their own paths anyway. So. Yeah, absolutely, and I think it's 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 important to be able to share your work. Um, that can give it new life, give it different um, things that you may not have thought of. And I think it's just it's it's very nice to have um, a team or like a n network of people that you sort of trust and respect, and you share ideas. And you know, there's we've kind of good commonalities, but enough difference and enough tension to kind of make new things. Um, so that's what I'm quite keen on nowadays. Cool. Sounds mm. good. Yeah, sounds exciting. I'm going to keep an eye on everything that you're doing. I'm going to. <laughs> good. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. Oh, pleasure. And um, yeah, well, I'd love you to do something in the Ambit Pop as well. I'd love you to mm. sort of demonstrate what I'm thinking. I'd love Deborah to write uh, an essay on. on identity and the archive and how things change through time so mm -hmm. I'm really keen to invite her to do that and have a talk and stuff um, okay. but you know it's, it's like yeah you're gonna have I mean it will have however many pages and I should just give them over to you and let you run wild with them <laughs> that could be uh, that could be a lot of fun I would yeah that. yeah yeah 
yeah or write something you know I mean like I'd quite yeah. be nice to write something about kind of about what contemporary practices and even you know the idea of competition there's going to be some people who are upset not to be selected because they've spent time on it they've paid a small amount of money to to be a part mm. of it and to support the competition I mean everyone who mm. enter is supporting the act yeah. really and although that means that there aren't you know not everyone gets selected and that's it you know that's the rejection mm. cycle I guess it? I guess it's a, it's a tough one and it maybe it's not much of a kind of a um, reward as such but what I always found with competition or competing is the kind of the idea of just pushing yourself so the fact that you've got this thing done or maybe you finished this piece of work or you've added something new to it because of the fact that you're adding you're contributing to a competition would then give your work something else which you can use somewhere else so even if it's not selective i think it's certainly a process that's worth pursuing because it just gives you structure it gives you deadlines it gives you things like that which are always quite helpful for pushing your own work forward yeah I mean I've grown up in the media yeah I mean I've grown up in the media too so I feel the same I mean like I operate well to deadlines I need a deadline really or it just can sprawl infinitely and it you know it does get more done I, I think um, absolutely and it, it gets, it's really good training it helps you yeah. also not be too precious about stuff it helps you let work go yeah um, which I think is very important yeah yeah so yeah I'm really excited to do this and sort of see see what comes out of it really and kind of you know maybe have more discussions you know with the art well with um Stephen and Murray about how to how to actually form the form the magazine into being something really special because I'd like it's the first one we're doing so yeah it'd be great yeah, yeah I'd love to I'd love to be involved Brown. I'm looking forward to seeing the, the submissions when they, as they yeah as they, as they drip through. Me too. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much for coming on, and yeah, and I'm we'll be sharing this on Soho Radio now live. This is the Tuesday show, <laughs> Tuesday evening live. And then it's going to be shared infinitely on ambitmagazine.co.uk, which then kind of shares across all your favourite podcast networks. So, yeah. Fantastic. I will look out for the rest of it. All right. Many thanks. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, you can help these things and then they're just knocked off, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. mm-hmm. Anyway, because it begs the question what you said earlier about underground magazines and things. How can it how can it remain underground when it's um, when it's out on on the internet, you know, and it's the Instagrams and everything like that? That is the new underground, isn't it? I mean you have to know of something. Are, are, are people gonna be still invested in printed magazines i think we've got such a huge surge in zine culture all right i mean my my research into this is um i was looking really at the late 60s early 70s when um Bart ballard joined ambit as a as a literary editor at some point and i think it was probably 
I don't know, it might be it's in my piece somewhere. And um uh, I think it was like sixty-five or something. I'm, I'm guessing it was around sixty-five. Profoundly important person, and uh, cut up. I mean, it was a very right. You know, I'm a, I don't want to overuse the word radical, <laughs> but it was introduced by uh, William Burroughs and, and Brian Jising quite a while earlier. Ballard got hold of it through Burroughs, started to use it as a way to write write novels, just to crack up the to break up the linearity of a novel. Magazines were really good at breaking up linearity anyway, but they had to in some way. The politics I always see that are the politics of outsiders who kind of really anti-establishment politics, but anti-establishment, uh, anti-British establishment politics. It's, it's not um, the politics of, uh, you know, IT or Oz, you know, these are kind of different, different things altogether. And, and they weren't the politics of there's a whole lot of poetry magazines in the States. The, uh, the British Library's got a really good collection of these things. One was called... Uh, I used to go down there and research, actually, a lot and get them all out. I used to love going in and seeing it all. Magazine. Mm. Um, you know, it, I mean, for me, I mean, the way I wrote about this was that he was a space for really interesting people. I mean, I was interested in the Palazzi... Ballard collaboration. Martin Bates is very important because he kind of saw the value of that and let let this thing happen. You know, some editors, I don't know what you're like as an editor, but some editors are quite controlling, and other editors kind of let things happen. And I think Bax always always let things happen. Um, it, that produces so that's a risky kind of strategy. But on the other hand, it was his magazine, you know. Um, he wanted. He, he knew what he didn't want, and he was open to things that may happen through these kinds of lacy fear, through so that lacy fear kind of attitude. In my view, the magazine, the most important thing about these magazines, they allowed things to happen, and there was a space for those to happen. You know, a big publisher like Penguin or whatever it might be, and may not want to take a risk with something that Pulitzer did or Ballard did, but if they could play around in a magazine with this stuff. So it was a kind of experimental space for me. Um, that's important, um, you know. And and perhaps you know, I'm not an expert in poetry magazines. Um, art magazines were not interested in this kind of stuff. You know, Studio International was the most pro prominent um, art magazine in the, in the 70s. Uh, a lot of stuff, you know. See, I think uh, there's a media theory kind of element to it, and a situationism to Ambit that Palazzi kind of embodied and and jg ballard and i think they did kind of probably have a vision in that sense in a wider kind of in a wider a wider less specific way ballard stuck to the words what's really interesting is that we they shared the, the same attitudes and if you put them together in, in a magazine like this you, you see the resonance through the way that it converged in terms of the taste of what he thought of the world. I mean, that's, that's really interesting. Can I just say, yeah, I'm just saying, I love what you're saying there, and I think there was a, is, all of these people had a portfolio of work, so they would write for short stories, and then they'd write their novels, like Jeff Nicholson, you know, he has uh, all of his fabulous novels, and then you, you're writing little observational pieces for magazines like Ambit, 
and uh, it's just part of the and you know Ballard he had a show at the ICA of Crash Cars and he's helped start the ICA and so it's a portfolio um, conception I think where you have many feelers out there and you're doing a lot of different things at the same time to reach the public that now would be quite easy on the internet you know and I know I know Jeff has a blog about walking in LA and uh, you know that's kind of observational stuff yeah. and maybe won't make a novel but you never know um, that's all yeah, I think quite a lot of people say that I mean I haven't got really into this yet and I'm looking forward to going deeper into this but say with Crash I mean there's all sorts of early experimentations of J.G. Ballard's Crash in, in Ambit and that's that's kind of the space for it my i've got early the bits that have been published by me but selected by jeff nicholson are templates for what's become my novel that steven's just designed that's coming out next week and i mean it's it's very much a platform to do that and i mean the the legacy of writers and and authors uh, and poets and artists within that it's definitely a, a place for Experimentation. I mean, with the Deborah Levy stuff recently, that's that is totally experimental at the time. So it's and and that archive. I want to explore more and see how that does develop because some of the stuff is is problematic contemporarily. You know, it's kind of and how how stuff does age and some of this stuff has aged really, really, really brilliantly. Yeah. I'm thinking of Charles Bukowski. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, is that right? Yeah. And he was, you know, he had a day job as a mailman or a lorry driver. And then, you know, he was an alcoholic. And then he's writing these books at the same time. So you're feeding one part of your life from another part of your life, you know. The individual neurosis and how it's, it becomes creative. Oh, that's a drive, generally, isn't it? But, <laughs> <laughs> but, but um, I mean, Mike, so Dr. Martin Bax was a doctor. Sure. He wasn't a doctor in literature. He was a paediatrician. I don't see that he had a struggle to be accepted into literary work. I don't think it caused him any concern whatsoever. He didn't give a damn whether he was accepted or not. He wanted to do his magazine. Do you, yeah. think it, do you think it was like a hobby to start with? A bit more than that. Well, more, it's a medical thing, you know. Yeah, I think it was... Well, hobby kind of undersells it, because it was, yeah. for him, much more important than that, but yeah. it was... More of a love of the, of the subject, too. Yeah. yeah, he just loved literature and art, so forth. And I keep going back to the thing, that it just grew out of a, a lifestyle, a social lifestyle, a mixture of, of people coming together and getting along and, you know, rubbing together and coming and sparks would fly and uh, some of those would end up on the pages of Ambit. Um, I mean, for me, it was almost un an unconscious thing. It didn't look like we set out to achieve anything. It was that we, we, like, we had fun doing it. And were you freelancing across different titles at the same time? Yeah, I was working for the, you know, various things. But my main career thing has been doing books, from, you know, the Bible to Shakespeare to, uh, well, to J.G. Ballard, and uh, writing my own stuff as well. I mean, I've done about, I think it's two hundred and eighty books so far. And Amber is a kind of, um, just part of my life. And how but, how's it folded in, and how have those things 
influenced one another? I don't think there was any kind of cross-fertilisation, really. It was just that Ambit was this, this special thing, stood on its own, had its own world, its own characters. And uh, to some extent, it was like a relief for me because you would do two or three drawings and, uh, you know, enjoy doing that, encourage other people to do, to do their things, whereas commitment for a book, as you know, will take up you know, a big chunk of your year. So Ambert was like, um, I don't know, like having a snack along the way. It was kind of sustained you and gave you a... a it was like a little holiday. Mm. Yeah, it's like a holiday break, weekend break, mm. Ambit. And the thing is that Martin was such a lovely chap. I mean, we also enjoyed his presence when he turned up with, you know, his books and whatever. And uh, I was always finishing with the pub talking about what we are going to do, you know. So here's a track from the Soundscape Poetry Project album by Culture Recordings. Just Google them. Glorious mess. An eruption of high-pitched belly juice slushing the yard. Freedom. Webbed feet palancing on baked dust nostalgic for more wrinkled souls. To amass gravel, eternal rebellion. Drumsticks budding lonely emanations. Dribble and slime of the few who accomplish self-gratification in hard times. While wild, bulging, bloodshot eyes and a titan beak. Horse and infestation of ants. I saw her next skin wrapped round the dumpling, a foot in my uncle's ball. His grin informed me how heavenly the slipperiness of her vernacular tasted. Her peripatetic blubber satisfied a demands for lawlessness. Each chunk of temerarious fat, a sacrifice I was discouraged from exercising. Enchanting, the epilogue she gave. Shedding a pitiful impersonation of a domestic beneath a banana tree. Puffed breasts, snatching the sun's rays. The wired fence slices it. Sun, now severed, balances on a tail primped in fluff. Quivering, jostling in ambivalence. Expanding wings preparing to gently knock when chimes then argue with a tempest. To this day, I cannot eat chicken feet. Bearing witness to her ungainly parade of frenetic feathers coerced me to covet the notion of pandemonium in my skeleton. To stand in a river of caterpillars hibernating Hebtudinius. To find temporary residence in Michael Jackson's left sock so I know what it's like to dissolve into backwardness with people still praising you to live as she did. Even without a head, she refused to die silently. Even without a head, she refused to die. Labyrinth. 
I, inveterate chain rattler, walk, walks, corridors and passages, threadbare carpet, trade emulsion, in and out the dream swarm attics, boot heels thump in musty stairwells, brick backyards and alleys, ginnels, duck ducks under arches, doorways, entrances with taped up doorbells. A void avoids the neighbours screaming, blue-faced landlords, weeping women, liars, actors, murderers, transients and suicides. Into dusty lobbies piled with post unopened, basement bars and vinyl cafes, up and down the winding cliff steps, and last sit sits on the benches in the Chinese garden, in the so-called Chinese garden, shade and shadow, stagnant pool with sunlight filtered through the distant buzz of traffic. difference that Judy Bax had. I mean, Judy Bax, she used to, when I'd go for these posh dinners afterwards, I'd be like, wow, this is Dr. Martin Bax. I'm really impressed. Mm. And there'd be great poets who were the the line between kind of me and beatnik culture, kind of a connection. And I'd be there. And then Judy would just come and sit. She'd be like, sit here, doll. And like we just chat and she'd tell me little stories about the culture that she'd been a part of. I mean, she'd worked in a library in California before she met Martin. Yeah, thanks to her legacy that we're actually operating. That's why we're here today is because of a donation from Judy Bax's um, estate. You know, thank you, Judy, because she, you know, the part that women have played in the history of Ambit in that way, I'm sure she was organising it because uh, from what Bryony tells me, the paper was everywhere when she took over in 2013. And I don't think it would be happening either without Bryony because she has, there wouldn't be this continuation if she hadn't organised it. It's, it's almost like an institution now. And that's what I find quite confusing because it's a, it's a, kitchen table production my kitchen table mm. <laughs> at the moment mm. and, and Stephen's kitchen table and they're kind of separated by a zoom screen and then Bryony in Norfolk zoom screen and her sort of editing and then the fiction editor Kate Pemberton who's been there for you know for ages and she's been so brilliant with me just kind of guiding me I was going to say that Kate Pemberton knows more about what we're talking about than anybody 
What, the female aspect of it? No, the whole thing. Yeah. How it, how it operates, how it keeps going. I think your term G kitchen table production is... Yeah. It's the mark, pretty much. Yeah, that's it. It would all happen in Martin's kitchen. <laughs> so, so Stephen, Stephen Barrett, who's the new designer. I was just going to add, I think what you were saying about it almost getting designed in the pub and that kind of thing maybe contributed to its that sort of loose aesthetic it has, but... There is something I've experienced, which is just the energy of working on a, pub, a magazine. It might be not just be about Ambit, but just that speed that happens because you're, you know, you're working on something quickly. You know, there's going to be another issue, and it does sort of free you up to being playful, playful, and taking risks. I think and things like that. Yeah. So that that seemed to sort of chime with what you were saying about how it came about in the, you know, the earlier days. I think. Yeah. So Stephen, what's your history? Tell us a bit about what you've done before i mean this is the first magazine you've worked on i understand and you were excited to to do this um i mean i think yeah i do feel like a a, a complete newcomer really i mean i was aware of ambit as a student um uh when i left college i went to work with a designer called fraser muggeridge who was a classmate of john morgan and so that was that connection and he would show me copies of Ambit and stuff at the studio. So that's where I really came, kind of became more aware of it and saw, you know, the bird, all the bird saw issues and that kind of thing. And I think, um, yeah, when Murray sort of asked me to get involved, it was like something obviously has this massive history and some really notable designers have been involved with it. So, yeah, it kind of has that. Lots of people hold it in quite high regard, even though it is almost, it's quite a humble publication really and I felt like I think at first it was it, in the last sort of 10 years it had changed the look and feel of it quite dramatically and it become this sort of glossy colour art magazine I suppose so that I you know there's a bit of hesitation in getting involved in a way because was that, was that when John Morgan took over it got a bit glossy well, no John Morgan was way earlier I think mm. I think I'm not sure they even had a designer in the last ten years. It was just. I think there's been a template over that that's been inherited from John Morgan that's been production managed, and I think Olivia backs because Olivia is her her father's cousin. Her father's cousin is Martin Bax, mm. and she was studying sculpture. And when Bryony Bax took over, who's actually a Bax by marriage. She's that her father was the poet Adrian Mitchell, and that it can all get it can all sound very nepotistic sometimes with all the backses, and I don't think that that's necessarily fair at all because I think you know it wouldn't exist without Olivia, and Olivia's humour in the art that she's curated over the last ten years has and they've been trying to open it up as a more commercial freeze type it, it, thing. Yeah, didn't so. Martin have two sons? Yeah, yeah, Tim. Tim, that's right. Tim, yeah. Mm, not sure if did, I've met him. Did that come into the equation? Well, t Tim's on the board, so <coughs> Bryony set it up as a charity, and that was kind of one of the main things that she's kind of kept it going mm. in that way by having some of her family friends donate to it, and it runs on angels. I mean, we're very lucky to have people that support it mm. because running a magazine of this quality with this type of paper, with actually paying people, actually, you know, writers always get paid. I mean, that's it's not much, 
but at least there's that token and I mean I'd like to get more advertising in so that I can pay people more so that it becomes a, a more a more realistic prospect because it's so tough doing the DIY stuff all the time but it's so beautiful and energetic and I love doing publishing and I mean I've, I've transitioned in this from doing a lot of media in the past to doing more arts stuff and that's what's that's what's been really interesting it's kind of it's it is you're dealing with poets and they're they're submitting and they're submitting through the channels that are available to everyone because it is a charity and it is providing ladders into literature for new artists and new poets and new writers so that's really really genuine and that's kind of what it's there for is to give those ladders in and and it's this is what I was talking about this this subculture that has now moved digitally so it's kind of how does it transition into this next phase but still remain as being a print publication so it's it's interesting I mean you know Bryony's published brilliant people who have you know won all the awards but it's it's also the culture this is interesting too is is kind of how the actual industries of literature of poems and the art industries they've all blossomed since it began right they are, you know, it's not pa it's not like church paying for a piece of art. It's it's that there's a huge art market. David Hockney has been part of that. I mean, it's it's kind of how all of this stuff has changed. Peter Blake. I mean, all of that is really, and and poetry. I mean, there's so many poetry schools, creative writing. There's so many, so much of it. So, kind of, ha and and also with the whole DIY culture of how many I go to a zine fair that are so, it's so easy to print now because it's not an elitist thing that it was before so what you know it was a space that you had to I mean Ambit was classy back then because it was getting p printed on expensive paper mm. and that's why it looks different to the Jeff Nottle stuff or kind of the you know the in Sinclair stuff or or whatever those things were it it looks it, it's beautiful it's high quality high quality stuff and but that's available anyone can print now I mean it's and people do because they get taught it in schools and that's what you do but I don't think that those channels were as open before so kind of how how Ambit finds itself now is is witnessed as being some sort of big institution because it's been doing it for a long time but it's still in you know there's a lot of us doing it so it's it's yeah it's interesting yeah Right, um, it's uh, lovely to uh, meet everyone. And, um, uh, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. I can't wait to. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about your show at the Photographer's Gallery? Well, you've been very generous about that. It's a very small thing, and it's one of four shows to come. The, um, the idea is to try and mark the 50th anniversary. Um, they're just they're just quite small uh, shows produced from archival material that try and um, uh, not exactly tell a history but suggest um, two things. One, what, what's singular about the mag this particular the magazine, this particular ga uh, gallery? Because you know this this did something that was very strange. You know, you, you decided to get behind uh, and promote photography as art. I mean, what is that? You know, how did that work? And the other thing is, uh, it existed in a, a large uh, international network. What was that network, and how did it function within it? So these are the two good, two big questions. 
and uh, we're doing it with archival material as posters you know some of the stuff that that's up there now so so it's um it will add up to something but i think it's episodic you know <laughs> it's, so it's just been interesting but you're uh you you like working in archives what's yeah. And who was the guy with the moustache, the Dali moustache? He was always in Hamlet, wasn't he? He taught it. Oh, Robert Macaulay. Is it still he died recently. Yeah. You're kidding? No, yeah. He oh, was yeah. one of my tutors. Robert Macaulay, real yeah. character. Mm. I remember going drinking with him. Yeah. Yeah, he was a really cool tutor. He always wore, like, polka dot shirts. Yeah, he was yeah. a real dresser. His, um, his famous for his shirts. But he, yeah. well, a few years back now, he had to go into a home. Oh, okay. in Chelsea. I, I went to visit him several times oh. there and each time he'd kind yeah. of use it. But he knew a lot about computers. He, was, he taught that, didn't he? I mean, he was I yeah, I think he was one of the first people to start was, bringing the yeah. Apple Mac into the art school. A friend of mine, he taught her and she's really into computer stuff. He was great. But I, I remember going on a martini crawl with him. <laughs> <laughs> As they say, <laughs> three are too many and is too little <laughs> <laughs> next to the Regent Palace Hotel do you remember that where all the hookers used to be back in the 20s uh, before my time <laughs> it was an amazing martini bar there with pot plants kind of art deco you know and he said I'm going to take to this place and I just don't remember him leaving <laughs> bye <laughs> he was a character but yeah, he, he taught at Martins, yeah I remember I went I went there as a student of my portfolio to sort of wow. be interviewed and he showed us round. Wow. I just remember his moustache and just him running around yeah. the so I'm very corridor. sad to hear that. Yeah, it's really yeah. sad. It's quite recent. Yeah. But he, yeah, I did notice that he, I didn't really know when I was a student, but there's a lot of his work is in Ambit, I think. Yeah, it is. Um, Every, yeah, many issues in, mm. in a row, I yeah. remember. Yeah. No, he was at the Royal College same time. Yeah. I was there. Was it two years behind me? Oh, okay. And he was. Is that how he got into Ambit through you? Yeah. Mm. yeah. I mean, this is kind of what I wanted to capture: was that culture of, yeah. of, 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 of kind of a, quite an informal mm. culture of what Ambit was yeah. like. Because you know, I think that the mechanics of creativity now, particularly in COVID, have been very online, yeah. and. You, almost with digital culture, you do you you have a different a different approach. Yeah. It was very it. much the same with newspapers. I was was working in newspapers, and we'd all meet at the French on Friday yep. lunchtime mm. with all these very impressed <coughs> Scottish cartoonists like McClacken, <laughs> and they'd all just complain about the money they weren't getting. And but we would all meet on a Friday yeah. and then go to the we, Colony Club and then come back to the French. And, yeah. and then just after, say, oh, I've got to go home now. Bye. Yeah, but then you'd go to Dingwalls. Then you'd go to Dingwalls. Because that was up until <laughs> two or three. Yeah, yeah. I was in Dingwalls the other day for yeah. a live show in the wind instruments at the front. Yeah. yeah. That no, but that Friday thing was, was, that was, was a thing. key because yeah. by Friday lunchtime, all the work had been done for the weekend for the, yeah. for the Sunday papers. Oh, yeah. okay. so be there. That's so right. there'd be other journalists, there'd be other artists and illustrators, photographers and so forth, plus you know, the local gangsters. Yeah. Jack Spot and... Yeah. I remember Francis like Bacon Francis always sitting Bell. in the corner, yeah. you yeah. know, and there was a boxer, wasn't there? Black boxer in the other yes, corner. Um, what was his name? Um, in the other corner. I've seen artists' Chicago pictures. Day. I've seen yeah. pictures of him in art, that guy. Yeah. 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 He also didn't see the speed of the road. 
Pardon? Chicago, you were sitting in the seat. Chicago, seat. that's it, yeah. yeah, you, yeah. Couldn't, you couldn't sit yeah. there. You, you no. <laughs> yeah. No, no. That was a special oh, fantastic place. French was a special place, wasn't yeah. it? So, I mean, it was that even up from Fleet Street and stuff, people would, it was still people would knock into Soho for drinks yeah. after. Yeah, yeah. 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 Hmm. I think it all changed when they changed the name from... Uh, the fr- from French. It was yeah, called the French. French. Oh, that was yeah. The death. No. Because it was called the uh, the uh, uh, the Old Minster. York Minster. Yeah. Yeah. But it was always known as the Gaston. Was the it was always known as the French pub because that's where the French resistance people so would go during the war. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. And Patisserie Valerie's, that was yeah. very old, wasn't I mean, it? Ma- that was Maison, Maison Bateau, though, Maison is Bateau. the uh, older one, yeah, isn't she, it? Yeah. She, yeah. yeah, and she ran the Soho Society, didn't she? The woman who, uh, I can't remember her name now. Yeah, I and I think she still does. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, wow. with, uh, with I think, Claire Lynch, who produces here and does yeah. a show on Soho the, Radio. There was also the crossover with music, wasn't there, in Soho at that time, you know, because you've got Ronnie Scott's and yeah. uh, Jerry's down in the basement. There, there was I did a book like, launch in Jerry's not so you? long ago. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I never went there. But there was something like 300 venues in Soho. There's about six now, you know, mm-hmm. for jazz, for, you know, Tubby Hayes and all those people. All the musicians used to meet in Archer Street, which is where the casinos are, you know, between... I Tim, can't remember. Oh, it's Tim Pan Alley. Tim Pan Alley. And Tim Pan Alley, yeah. yeah. But they get their work in Archer Street, yeah. I think. They do all go to the... Uh, wind up there with their mu- instruments and go off to venues all over the place. But Tim Pan Alley was more a sort of rock and roll later, wasn't it, with Larry Pards and all those guys. Um, but maybe earlier, too. You tell... Yeah. Well, I yeah. thought they were one and the same, Tim Pan Alley and... Yeah. Well, it was all connected, but that this is where the work was, wasn't it? It was yeah. so... Uh, and with film, you know, I remember going to those little... F- in Wardour Street, all those downstairs film basements, see people's rough cuts for films. And, it was and what just about the folk club scene? How folk did that, club, how did yeah, that fit bungees, in? Yeah. yeah, the folk club scene in the 50s. Well, there was the Two Eyes, you know, where mm. Tommy Steele started, mm. and bungees, and there were a lot of folk clubs, you know, in the basements in, I don't know, you know... I, I was living in Wembley, and we had our local... Fo- they were usually above a pub or something, or in a basement, and they were, they were places called, like, uh, what were they called? Antediluvian societies, and they'd always have, like, bison hanging on the wall, and they would take Masonic lodges, and they were taken <laughs> over by the folkies and beatniks in the, in the 50s, you know. With the, with the woolly jumpers and uh, you know sandals and black coffee, and uh, and I went to art school in 1960 when I was 13, and I just remember all At the 13. B- you went to art school. Yeah. How did that work? It was a thing called the 13 plus, wow. and I think David Hockney also. There were a couple of other people that did the same thing. So you got in, it's called secondary art. So you got in at 13, so 14. And it was called the secondary art course. So you had to do a token amount of academic stuff. But it was heaven. I was there for ten, you know, seven years. Well, so you specialised super early in it. And it, did you yeah. then go in to get an apprentice the on the Royal back College. of it? Oh, you were, yeah, OK. With Tony Messenger. Do you know Tony Ma- Helen Messenger? Tony Messenger. They were I know iconic. I know of In Helen. the same year as yeah. Mike, wasn't he in the same year as you at the Royal College? Who was that? Tony, Tony Messenger. Messenger. Yeah, and he was yeah. more or less, and he yeah. did that crash Porsche, cra- it's hard to say that, <laughs> crashed Porsche painting, and yeah. uh, he was a legend, Tony Messenger, you know. 
And what about Richard Hamilton? Because I think he did. Yeah, he taught. Yeah, I know people he taught. Yeah, he was. uh, Yeah, from the north, wasn't he? And yeah, he taught Tim Head. And uh, yeah, amazing, amazing period. And people, I I just remember being at the Royal College, and people would you'd be there all day, you know, drawing, and then suddenly someone special like Mike would come in, and you'd have a, a day of someone from the outside world. Who was actually working? You never finished telling us that story about him coming <laughs> in to class and tell it and and getting you to do. Well, the whole class. I think you had the whole class do a drawing, didn't you? There was, uh, you know, and uh, Linda Kitson was in my. There were only nine of us in the class. Linda Kitson, who was uh, the war artist, you know, went off to the Falklands and was pretty traumatized by that experience. Whose father was a brigadier or uncle was a brigadier, so. They wouldn't send um, Ralph Steadman or Gerald Scarf because it would be too radical what they brought mm. back. So they sent Linda, who was quite a straight-ahead drawer, you know, and mm. she was pretty shocked when she came back from that. Mm. And Dan Fern, who became head of Royal College, was mm. in my year, you know. So there were only nine of us, and Quentin Blake was the tutor. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> he was a <our> tutor. <laughs> and it was an amazing time, because you'd be rubbing shoulders with all these extraordinary... Peter Blake would wander through. And I remember... So Quentin Blake and Ralph Steadman, there's clearly a, a yeah. relationship there that I've always seen, but not yes, really understood. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, and going back before that to Ronald Searle, he was my first major yeah. scratchy pen person. Mm. I'm like, Whoa, Ronald Searle was... And he he made all those fabulous war drawings, drawings didn't yeah. he? And uh, that he kept hidden under his bed or whatever. But he was his Molesworth drawings were just that line, you know. Yeah. Blots and I think Ralph Steadman must have been influenced. <laughs> I think there's some Ron Searles in, in the old Ambits, isn't there? There might well I've be. Been, when I've been looking through, I've seen yeah. the old one. Yes, there might I don't be. Recall him being in. Pardon? I don't Shall recall. I check my database? Uh, maybe on your yeah, database. I I he was I mean, my first scratchy pen hero. <laughs> I think another great thing is that we're all still working. <laughs> we're all still yeah. doing more or less what we did, you know. And it's so great to be working. I just yeah, really love doing. I would do it for nothing anyway. But uh, it's just great to still be doing what I've always done. And I've never done anything else since the age of 13. So, well, since the know. age of four. Really. <laughs> I mean, laying in front of the fire, drawing. Yeah, the, yeah. yeah. And uh, um, I was really lucky because my, my mother ran a village shop. Yes. And uh, into the village one day came a new person to the village, which is quite, quite rare. I mean, during the war, was, it was full of strangers and all came into the shop and so on and so forth. And uh, all the local boys would be newspaper, to deliver my newspapers for my mum's shop. And uh, this guy came in one day, and uh, I used to do little drawings, advertising stuff that my mother had in the shop. And he said, oh, you like drawing? He said, I'm going to start a Saturday morning class for for children. Why don't you come along? And he was a teacher at the art school. Wow. And uh, so I was about... Well, I was still at primary school, so I was under 11, went along the first Saturday morning class, absolutely loved it. And the first day he took us all out drawing in an orchard. We didn't sit there and make stuff up. He wanted us to draw real things. And from that time onwards, that's what I loved to do, was to draw reality rather than... I was told you illustrated one of the pieces that I had in Amber, and it's really great. It's really good. It's really good. You did? 
No, Mike, oh, Mike illustrated it. So, yeah, I've been told. Oh. Yeah, but I mean, I don't, I'd like to see your, I'd like to see your archive, dear, and sort of have a look, have a, have a flick through. And Chris Beetle's gallery just ran the road, down the road. Brilliant. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, we should do a, something. If you more. want to do something, I mean, a book I did I don't know, five years ago is called mm. A Life in Pictures, which mm. is like a retrospective. Starting with me laying in front of the fire drawing and up to the, you know, the whole. The, the, the whole years. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. 70 years of scribbles. Fantastic. And my book came out in 2016 called A Life in a Letterpress. Wow. Yeah, tell us about that. Well, a bit like Michael, I wasn't in front of the fire, but I started like, when I was 13, setting type and at school on an Adana flatbed press. I had a great art teacher, I had a great governor. I met everybody eventually in London who was the greatest typographers in Britain, including mm -hmm. Birdsell. And so, uh, a bit like Michael, you know, I haven't stopped and I'm still doing it. Mm -hmm. I describe myself as a typographic artist, mm -hmm. not a graphic designer. Or an illustrator, because um, I don't because I, uh, I don't know what to call myself really. But that sounds near, near enough, you know. I make prints out of woodblock type. Beautiful. My gallery yeah. is Advanced Graphics, mm. London, mm. and uh, all the work goes through them. Mm. Mm. Uh, brilliant. So, Ken Cox, you've got your exhibition on at the moment. I've too. got a couple yeah. of things on. I've, I've just produced a book of postcard, lockdown postcards, mm. which is being put in the roof, which is being rebuilt in the Chelsea Arts Club, in the time capsule. Oh, They've got a time capsule with menus and things, and my book of lockdown postcards, which is like a tear-out book. And I've also got an exhibition in um, um, The Last Drop Wine Merchants in the King's Road. Hmm. at the moment which is really nice to have of quilts and screen prints hmm. and it's part of the Kensington and Chelsea art trail which is a big thing so it's covering all of Westminster and Chelsea with various artists talking and various people um, conceptual things going on in St Duke of York Square and it's quite a big thing and there's banners hanging in the King's Road of Chelsea Arts Club members hmm. across the street where the original arts club existed that Whistler founded with his sculptor friend and uh, yeah so I'm quite busy really. mm. yeah and I've just had a show in Putney Library for six months but nobody saw it <laughs> <laughs> it was actually open for a week <laughs> well no it was open the whole time but nobody could go in what I'd so like to offer the audience though as well now is just that, like the opportunity to be a part of Amber too. Yeah. I mean, like anyone can submit for the competition that we've got open at the moment. So that's open to poems, yeah, right. art. It's actually the first time we've opened it up to art. So anyone can put in an illustration on the theme of metamorphosis. Oh. I hope you'll submit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're all going through it. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> And I mean, and, and what we're going to do with that is with the winners and the commended and the, the great work that comes from that, that's judged by Michael Salu, who was an editorial director of Granta and has his own thing, House of Thought. And I'm doing a separate podcast with him shortly. And he's going to talk about his own, pro his own kind of um, process. But yeah, he's judging 
who's judging this stuff. So I'm hoping that they'll write essays, the judges, too. We've got Deborah Levy on fiction, and we've got Kim Adonizio, who's the poet judge. And so for the first time, we're going to dedicate a whole edition, an ambit pop, to the winners of the competition. And that's only going to be as good as the submissions. So, I mean, we've just got to... Well, Amber Pop is looking great. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Thank such, you. <laughs> such a relief to, to get something that, that this is what I'm going to keep. Yeah. After the last few years of. I must confess, Chris, that I, did, I gave up my subscription to Ambit about two years ago. Mm. I don't know why. I can't remember. Because it did wasn't you? Amber anymore, was it? Something happened. But um, I think from now on I'll, 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 I'll resubscribe. I'd love it if you did actually put some stuff in for the competition. That would be really cool. I'll give the details. Yeah, we'll yeah. do. Yeah. yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening today and all the music that you've been hearing of in that introductory music by Gilda Ray is the Soundscape Poetry Project album. And again, just look for that on Culture Recordings. To find out any more about what you've heard about today, particularly the competition, just go to the submit page on our website and you can find us on social media.